Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. This morning, as promised last week, we will do something different. And this is, this last five sermons, four sermons, have been extraordinary. It's been out of the norm for me. For those of you who do know how I preach, I normally try to stick to the immediate context, preach the text within context. But this passage has been abused in so many ways. Verse 27 has been taken out of context in a variety of different ways. And I want to point that out to you this morning. And for that reason, I slowed down and I wanted to put the passage, the pericope, 19 through to 27, within its historical context and then explain the importance of understanding that um, various sections and how they all link together. This morning we are still in verse 27. I'm going to look at one phrase, and it is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. That's all that we're going to look at this morning. I will expand it to relate it to the immediate context and explain how significant it was for them. But what I'm going to do is look at the hermeneutical importance. Why hermeneutic, hermeneutics is so important. Why understanding the scriptures in a literal, grammatical, historical um, way is so important. The minute we deviate from that is the minute we get ourselves into trouble. Now those of you who do not know what hermeneutics is, it is the study or the approach, the principles we employ to understand scripture. So as I'm going to mention that, just remember it's the principles that we use to understand uh, Scripture. So this morning we will pause on that one clause to visit orphans and widows. Now there were some of you who weren't here for the last couple of weeks, and so I'll just do a quick um, catch-up for you. The last three sermons we were reminded that James had two acts of worship in mind, unworthy worship, Worship that God will not accept and worthy worship. And I've been told quite a few times that these are tests, but they are not. They are affirmed realities. James is not giving us a test of what worship is. He's affirming the reality of what true worship looks like. I use the word worship because of the word religion that James uses. This word particularly relates to the external acts of worship. That is the definition of what religion is. It's the external acts of worship. But consistent with wisdom literature, James reveals that all you need to know about a person is made manifest in his tongue. All that you know, need to know about who you are is revealed by your tongue. If you say that you are a religious person and if you bind yourself to the external religious acts, a series, a series of acts that, that demonstrates that you are quote-unquote religious without having a changed heart, demonstrated by a changed tongue, then your worship is no better than an idol worshiper, than pagan Worship. In other words, your tongue manifests the reality of your walk, the reality of your soul, and the reality of your worship before God. You may fool people by what you do on a weekly basis. You may come, pack out chairs, set up the sound, the equipment, sing, even lead Bible study. You may fool people, but Monday morning, that is who you are. When there's no one to witness who you are, the way that you speak, that is who you are. James says, stick out your tongue and I will tell you who you are. Show me your tongue and I'll show you your worship. I think we underestimate the importance of how the control of the tongue is. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, he has external acts of worship, but does not control or bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religious, religion is no different than pagan worship. That's that word, worthless. Many think that it's merely about attending church. Just going and doing the right kind of things. Pleasing people. Singing in choir. What about saying the right things? Because you've been in that church for such a long time. You have now adopted the language of Christianity. 
That hits deep. Yet you remain unrepented of your sin. You know who you are. Yet you want to serve and you want to be active in church, helping and showing a kind of love. These external acts of worship are unworthy acts of worship if the heart has not been changed. I hope you are pricked in your heart. Because I am. That is a barren spiritual experience that God will not accept. Will not accept it. James says, you think that God is impressed by your external acts of worship? You're wrong. He's not. Your tongue is the gauge of your worship. Your tongue is the thermometer of your soul, which means an uncontrolled tongue is indication of what? An unchanged heart. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You know this. With our mouths we confess, what? Jesus as Lord. And with our hearts we, what? Believe that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Did you catch a connection? Tongue and, or mouth and, heart. Confess with the tongue, believe in the heart. Why does Paul make that connection? Because that is what in Jewish literature is meant by the heart. When the heart is changed, what comes out of the mouth is demonstrated or revealed, reveals the nature of the heart. That's why we confess with the mouth, because the heart has already been changed, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Note the act of worship that takes place. You submit yourself before God, before Christ, who is Lord, and you demonstrate it by confessing who he is. You don't do that. You don't submit to him as Lord, then you do not worship him as Savior. If our sins go unconfessed, we live unrepented lives, then there's a problem with our hearts. That's verse 26. Verse 27. James affirms the reality of worthy religion through worship. We started looking at this last week. Acts of worship that God will receive. The language that James uses here, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and number two, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Where the religion is described as a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. What does the, the, the pure and undefiled worship include? Well, James gives us two things. He reduces pure and undefiled worship to two things. Two certainties that can be explained as a religion that is acceptable before God. It is number one, to visit orphans and widows. And number two, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I summarized like this last week. To visit those whom God loves. And number two, to keep from loving that which God hates. Personal and ethical. Personal and ethical. Visit orphans and children. True worship, worthy worship, pure worship, undefiled worship is expressed firstly through how we relate to orphans and widows. This must have been a major shock to Jews, the audience that he's writing to. Consider the fact that these two words, pure and undefiled, is primarily used of the sacrificial system. And James says, this is your act of worship. This is your sacrificial act of worship. Give yourselves. Give yourselves personally and ethically. How? Well, firstly... To care for those who are, I'm going to put this in, in, in quote, quotes, what do you call it, air quotes, vulnerable. I use that just because I, have a, I don't really have a word to, to explain who they are. The vulnerable, or maybe the unprotected, the endangered. And this is where the major interpretive problem comes in. That is a survey of the last few weeks. And... What we're going to look at next, maybe a repetition to those of you who were there on Wednesday, thanks to a certain few people. We will not mention Andrew and Wandile's name, but 
uh, Andrew was so gracious uh, in his um, comment to me. Well, that's what you get for preaching half a sermon. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That was so loving. But what I want you to see here is how important our hermeneutic is. How important our hermeneutic is. Take note that scripture can be understood and must be understood in a plain, normal sense of the word. And it is dangerous to break free from that. Before I get there, I want to build the contextual reason why James speaks about widows, sorry, orphans and widows. Number one, firstly, because the Father cares. Look at verse 27 again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. Stop there. Would it make sense for him to say religion that is pure and undefiled before God? Yes, absolutely yes. Why the qualification? The Father. Some of the harshest criticism against the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament against the nation of Israel is done because of their neglect of the poor, the orphans, the widows, and the strangers. Next time we will look at the theology of the poor for uh, our purposes in chapter 2. But James does not say religion before the world. He does not say religion in the church or before the church. He says religion, acts of worship that is demonstrated before God who is Father. Why mention Father? Why not Lord? as he does later. Why not merely God? Because there's a historical significance that must be considered before we understand widows and orphans. Orphans and widows. I use widows and orphans because the Old Testament puts it in that order. But it's orphans and, and widows. It is important to understand the quality of God that James uses here before he gives the explanation of what we need to do. He could have used holiness. does not. Could have used the glory of God or the majesty as beautiful and necessary as they are. He doesn't use that. He uses the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God. This characteristic of God who is father can be explained in three major contexts and in three different ways. Firstly, you don't have to turn to it but you can write it down or just listen. God as Father is demonstrated or revealed in his act as Redeemer. In Isaiah 63:16, says this, For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Yahweh, are our Father, our Redeemer from, our, from of old is your name. So firstly, Father relates to God as the Redeemer for his people. Secondly, God as Father and Sovereign over his people, Isaiah 68. There are many more verses. I'm only choosing one or two to illustrate my point. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says this, But now, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. Sounds familiar, right? Romans chapter 9. We are all the work of your hand. What is he expressing? The sovereign freedom of God to do with the clay what he chooses to do. Remember Jeremiah. God is free. The only free person in all of creation, in all of the existence of all things, is God himself. And he chooses to do what he chooses to do with his people. Fatherhood relates to that. Thirdly, this is what we need to be aware of. God as Father is manifested and seen in His provision, protector, provider, and sovereign judge. Listen to Psalm 68 verse 5. A father to the fatherless, that's orphans, and a judge for the widows is God in His habitation. This is who God is by nature. A father 
and judge at the same time. In the context of fathering the orphans and the widows, he is and he exists as what? A judge. Why? Because he cares for those who are hurting. He's intimately concerned about orphans and widows. His fatherly nature relates to how he will execute justice for those that cannot execute justice for themselves. Why is that important? Because God will act on behalf of them. You can count on that. God vows that he will be the one who will take matters in his own hands. Now don't misunderstand me. That does not mean that God will act immediately. He will judge, but in his own time. He will act, but when it suits him. When we think of judgment, we think of the immediacy of judgment. We think of justice that is now. But that's not the point. The point is that God will judge, but that judgment is determined by him and when it will occur. It will be executed. Listen to Psalm 10, verse 14. But you do see, speaking of God, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands to help uh, uh, to you the helpless commits himself. For you have been the helper of the fatherless. That is, the orphans. Again, there is no time given in the judgment and we naturally think of the immediacy of justice. That's not the point. If God wants to immediately execute justice, he doesn't have to take note of it. However, the point that the author is making is that God will take note of it and he will deal with those who deal unjustly with orphans. So for both widows and orphans, God presents himself as father and judge. Which means what? The way we treat orphans and widows matter to God. See, the fatherhood of God is connected to his concern, his love, and his justice for his people. God cares for them. And that care that God has for them must be demonstrated by his people for his people. In the context of James, those who have a worthy religion ought to be caring for those who are widows and orphans. Let me say it this way. Acceptable acts of worship include loving those whom God loves, caring for those whom God cares about, and protecting those whom God protects. James wants us to understand before whom our acts of worship is laid bare. Who the actual witness is, who who looks over how we treat his people. It is God who is Father. And in Old Testament understanding, when it relates to widows and orphans, God as Father means God as the one who will judge. Understand the force of that. God cares about what you do to orphans. And widows. So our behavior towards them will say much about our relationship with him. So James makes the connection to God as Father. He wants a church to understand that those who are in need matter to their Heavenly Father. You can see this throughout the entirety of Scripture. God cares for those who are his. Now, who are the widows and orphans? Or orphans and widows. This is the second element that provides limitation to how we understand this context uh, better and how we should apply it in the church. So firstly, God cares for orphans and widows. And secondly, the definition of orphans and widows must be taken from the scriptures itself, not from culture. How we define widows and orphans is determined by God, not by us. Another component in our understanding Uh, the impact of this passage is the description and the meaning of orphans and widows. So how should we understand it? And this is where the problem comes in. This is where our hermeneutic kicks into gear. The problem is that some take this to be representative, and that is, it doesn't mean widows and orphans only. 
it's a wide group of people. So therefore not literal. Orphans and widows has been changed to mean any person that is poor. It has changed to mean any person who is disadvantaged. It has been changed to mean anyone who is discriminated against. They say that James uses language that is illustrative of the poor and marginalized in their day. But that provides a problem. Because marginalized is defined in such a wide, inclusive way today that goes beyond the walls of the church and the association that the church should have. So then how do you limit the idea of the marginalized? So if this is representative of all the poor and the marginalized in society, then this is the impact. This is the outcome. We then, if that is true, must be social warriors. We must care about social justice. We must help the poor have a better life and take them out of their social economic status. That is, if James and other authors uses widows and orphans or orphans and widows in a more representative way. If he's saying care for them, that means all the poor, all the discriminated against, all those who are disadvantaged, if that is what he's saying, then why are we not engaged involved in social justice, then we are the ones who are sinning. However, I'm going to propose that James is not making a blanket statement for all the poor, but speaking contextually of those who are literally widows and orphans, as they would be understood and interpreted today. I think it's obvious, but let me take some time to explain that. In the first place, the word orphan is exactly as we understand it today. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans. Orphans literally means to be without parents. We don't think that that's metaphorical. That is literal, right? It can be used of those who are just fatherless. He's not present or he has died, but his mom is still alive. They are also called Orphans. Sometimes it is used like that. You get that in extra biblical material. So the fatherless was often equated to being an orphan. But this word relates to those who are without aid of a loved one. Jesus uses it in John chapter 14, verse 17. You may recall when he's about to go to his father and he says to them, I will not leave you as what? Orphans. He's not saying that you are orphans. He's using a metaphor or simile. Like, I'm not leaving you as orphans. So you should think the state or the condition of an orphan, a condition or state of an orphan is somebody that cannot care for themselves. They need external help. They need support. They need protection. They need guidance. They need preservation. That is what Jesus is saying to his Disciples, I am not going to leave you without guidance. I'm not going to leave you without help. I'm not going to leave you without protection. And I won't leave you without preservation. That's how we literally understand orphan. In other words, I will never abandon you. That is what Jesus is saying. If we expand the idea of orphans either even wider, you get to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. And listen to what um, Isaiah says there. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What is the context in Isaiah chapter 1? Failed worship. They forgot their God. They turned to idols. They failed in what God required of them as his people. So as a sign of repentance, as a sign of turning, as a sign of heading into right worship, correct worship, worthy worship, God gives them a few things that would highlight that. Take note of it. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Well, there you go. Social justice. Not so quick. He's not talking about the entire world. Who's he talking about? The nation of Israel. Care about those who are oppressed in your nation. Care about those who are widows in your nation. 
caring for the withers and the fatherless is part of what God desires as being repentative worship. Worship that has changed from idol worship to God through worship. I wonder if James knew about this passage because he says the same thing. Idolatry is what God rejects. Through worship is what he receives. And through worship is demonstrated in these two things. Keep yourself from the world and visit orphans and widows. Who are the orphans in Isaiah 1, 17? Who are the widows in Isaiah 1, 17? Those who were Jews. Those who were Jews. You may have noticed that in the Old Testament, widows and orphans often appear together in Scripture. And for this reason, some have said that this is a technical term for all those who are poor and um, in need. Well, go over to Exodus chapter 22. I'm going to challenge that theory. Dr. Abner Chow said in uh, one of the hermeneutic lessons, when you are proposed a problem from the text, do not answer the problem text with another text. That can be done, and that's helpful, but go to the text and answer the problem from the text. Why? Because the answer's there. I mean, that's simple logic, right? Eh? Sounds just like chow. Anyway, Exodus 22, we have a Bible header that says laws about what? Social justice. Interesting, really. This is social justice. Okay, verse 22. Let's see how social justice is executed here. You shall not mistreat a widow or fatherless child, which is what? An orphan. Remember I said sometimes fatherless child is considered to be an orphan. If you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. Just pause over there. I want you to see how God speaks about them. This is not representative. Clearly, he's speaking about the widow and the orphan as a literal group of people. They are taken together because if the husband's away or dead, there's a widow and there's an orphan. When the father has died, both Suffer. That's the point. That's why they're always connected. That's why they're always mentioned together. But notice what God says. I will surely hear their cry. But before I explain that, look at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you, who is what? Widows and orphans. Does it say that? No, it doesn't. It says poor. If widows and orphans is a technical term, why mention a different group as poor? Look at verse 21. You shall not wrong a what? Sojourner, as Peter would say, a sojourner. I like that. I don't think it's right, but I like it. <laughs> sojourner. Or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Different group of people. These are literal groups that God is mentioning. Sojourners poor and then widows and orphans who is a group by themselves. But notice what he says of those who are widows and orphans. I will hear them. There is something in, um, in Hebrew that is called the intensification of the main verb. That is when the main verb is followed by a cognate verb in the same word. Now listen to what it is. Eshema, Shema. You can hear the, the connection there. Eshema, Shema. That is, I will definitely, surely, you can count on this. I will hear. It's an intensification of the word hear. You know this. I will take note and hear. Hear is not just I'm going to put my ears to them, but I'm going to respond on their behalf. Take note how God Response. This is what social justice includes. You ignore the widows and, 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 and orphans. Well, here you go. Verse 24. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with a sword. What? And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Oh my goodness. Hmm. 
So when God speaks about social justice, he speaks about his justice that he will execute about on those who abuse those whom he cares about. Make sense? When God speaks about social justice, it's not the justice that we execute. It's the justice that he executes. There is social responsibility here that is different. There is social responsibility that God speaks about for the nation of Israel upon those who are poor, those who are sojourners, foreigners, and those who are widows and orphans. They, as Jews, have a responsibility to them who are Jews. Interesting point in verse 22 is this. If you shall mistreat or shall not mistreat any of, uh, sorry, you shall not mistreat any of the widow or fatherless child. That word mistreat is how you would you, uh, treat your enemy. You, you cause them pain, affliction, giving them discomfort. You put them in a hole in the wall and you neglect them. You don't give them any food. That's how you treat enemies. And God says, you will not treat widows and orphans as enemies. That's how the Egyptians treated the Jews. God says, you dare not treat them like enemies. Why? Because I care for them. I'm the judge. I'm the one that executes social justice. The net result of this judgment which is made upon the men, interestingly, is that God not only, not only holds them responsible to lead the nation in caring for widows and orphans and the poor and the, um, and the sojourners, but God will also judge the men because the net result of that is what? Widows and orphans. You can read uh, two books which are illustrative of this. Amos... And Micah, Amos is a judgment, I believe, on Israel for their um, lack of concern, social concern. And Micah is a judgment on Judah, I may have the two wrong, on Judah for a lack of social concern. Look at the execution of justice. God says, I will kill you, that's the men. Make your wives, widows, and orphans. Again, you see the connection between widows and orphans. That's one group of people, literal group of people. That's the whole point. In the Old Testament, widows and orphans were considered to be a distinct group of people. Why then, when we come to the New Testament, it's metaphorical? It's no different in the book of James. When he says... Widows, orphans and widows, he's speaking about a literal orphan and a literal widow. Internal proof in James can also attest to that. If you turn back to chapter 2 in James, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue and a what? Widow and orphan. No. A poor man walks in. Two distinct groups. If James wanted to use it as a technical term to be representative of all the poor, he would have used it consistently throughout his book, but he does not. He mentions them as a distinct group of people. He chooses a different set of words because he's got different groups in mind. The widow and the orphan are maybe, sorry, maybe poor, but they're not lumped in with the poor because they have a different context, a different situation. And so James, like every other author, do not lump them in together with the poor. All that to say that the father cares about widows and orphans. That is why the church must care about widows and orphans. So now let's consider what is being said here. Firstly, God cares for those who are his, those who are suffering. And in this context, it is the orphans and the widows. Secondly, widows and orphans in a hermeneutical, uh, grammatical, literal sense of the word must be undertaken, or, or, or rather taken to mean in the literal, historical, grammatical sense of the word as literal widows and orphans. Thirdly, 
And this is where the struggle comes in. What is the responsibility of the church? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And it means just that, to visit them in their affliction. If we interpret, however, orphans and widows as representative, then visit must go beyond the literal meaning as well. Make sense? If widows and orphans is metaphorical or a representative group, group, then care or visit must be taken to mean something more. Now, when you read commentaries, you will note that they will use words like, this is the social and cultural transformation that we must partake in. This is the duty of the church. This is fundamentally social justice. Some go as far as to say that this is the obligation of the church to help all the marginalized and therefore overcome poverty. Is that what James is saying? Let me give you some guys that you may be careful as you read them. Guys who I read all the time and I really enjoy their theology and their commentaries. But on this issue, just be careful. For instance, Douglas Moo says, quote, Social justice is placed as a contrast to self-deception. Speaking about verse 27, is a contrast to self-deception in 26. But verse 27, he says, is what? Social justice. He continues on in this verse, verse 27, he says, quote, This is the marginalized, all the poor, and the helpless and weak in society, end quote. Wow. Interesting. And this is where the rub comes in. Who are the marginalized? Who are they? How do we define that? Moore again, quote, It is the mission of the church to help the immigrants and those who are marginalized in society. You still get that general idea of marginalized? Well, define that. And he does. Listen to this. He goes on further to say, quote, The evangelical church in the U.S., must find ways to emulate God in his concern for the poor and the weak and the marginalized and so forth. So now it's not just the marginalized, it's anyone. Anyone that needs help. This should lead thoughtful Christians to be deeply concerned about global warming, end quote. What? Wait a minute. How did you go from social justice, social concern to, oh, the earth is going to break up and we're all going to die? So my question is, Dr. Moo, is James thinking about your carbon footprint or is he thinking about caring about somebody personally? See the problem? If you don't take widows and orphans literally, you got to define visit to be much wider than what James actually means. Another teacher that I really do like, uh, his accent is a bit annoying, but I do like him. Alistair Begg, I think he's Irish, Scottish. One of the two, they'll both sound the same. <laughs> anyway, he says, and I quote, and I'm not bashing them, I'm saying on this issue, be careful. And I want to point out why. Quote, Since there is no social structure, or there was no social structure and uh, uh, welfare to care for the poor, he's speaking about society back then in the New Testament and Old Testament, the church had to become the beacon of light, end quote. He says, since there was no government structure that would care socially for the poor, we the church ought to take that responsible, that social welfare, onto ourselves. Sounds very close to social justice, doesn't it? I don't think he means that, but it it heads in that direction. He says, James is identifying the epitome of human need. And then he says this. Those includes those who have AIDS, those who are paralyzed. Those who take this in the literal sense of the word would be saying it in a too wooden way to be interpreted. That is me. I'm I'm using a wooden literal translation here, so it doesn't mean that. It means more than that is what he's saying. It includes, he says, the powerless, those who are without rights and no status 
at all. What I've noticed is that they don't define this group. It's just a general statement of all those who are poor. Now, let me ask you then, if there was no social wealth or social structure back then, what happens when a government does have a social welfare and structure, like ours or in the States? Does that then replace the church's responsibility to care for the widows and the orphans? You see the challenge. I hope you're already starting to see the dangers. Let me help you think through this. If the church is responsible to help all aid sufferers, what about those who in a specific industry expose themselves to relations that will cause AIDS? You think of one? What about them? If it includes all aid sufferers, what do we do with them? What about all those who are paralyzed? I do agree that we do have to help those who are paralyzed. And I will, I will explain what I mean later on. But what about a thief who climbs onto your roof and slips and breaks his leg or hurts his back and now he can't walk? He's paralyzed. So if it's all paralyzed, what about that guy? If it's all immigrants, what about the gangster that walks over our boundary and walks in with drugs and guns and whatever else that you can think of? What about that guy if it's all immigrants? You see the problem that's taking place? When we don't stick to the literal meaning of the word, we abuse the text. There's another danger that we have to think about. This word marginalized that nobody defines. The marginalized in our society includes the LGBTQ plus minus XYZ. So, is that what we mean? What about BLM? A theology book that I reference quite a lot by Swindle and Zuck called Understanding Christian Theology says this, and I quote, James taught that Christians should practice Christian social action in the world, yet maintain spiritual purity. Where did they get this from? Verse 27. Christian service should go beyond our personal, family, church, and civil and vocational responsibilities and include areas such as ministry in our neighborhoods. Nothing wrong with that, but is that church ministry? Is that what the gospel is about? Lumped into this is what they claim to be an echo, what James is echoing in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, well, um, uh, when I was sick, you, you, you did not visit me. When I was in prison, or oh, sorry, you did not visit me. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. Remember that passage, Matthew 25? I think it's 33 and following. And he says, what you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. What did I leave out? Least of these brothers. These brothers. Who's that? Christ's people. Again, there's a limitation. If we only stick to the literal meaning of the text, we will understand it a lot better. Every context answers the questions that we raise against it. John Frame, he's okay, but he says this, quote, Education is part of our kingdom responsibility. I agree to, some, I agree, I agree to a uh, degree. But I don't agree with this. It is part of the gospel of the kingdom. No. But the question is not whether the church has a responsibility, but how should it undertake, that is the church, undertake that responsibility. The gospel of the kingdom is comprehensive good news for every aspect of human life, in quote. So get involved in education. Go change our social context. In fact, this is what we are hearing. It's cultural transformation. That is the word that is being used. Cultural transformation walks right through the door of social justice because the two work together. Social justice is after cultural transformation. Transformation, cultural transformation is akin of social justice. Let me prove it to you from a Nine Marks contributor. And he says, quote, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, James says, it is the church's responsibility to pursue both public compassion and personal piety. Public 
communal, transformational, transformation in culture and society, and personal piety. For example, although a failing school system is not a civic responsibility of the church, the church could, could get involved in doing good, his quotes, not mine, but perhaps coming alongside of the local church in providing after-school tutoring. That's okay. It's good, right? It's a good aspiration. Look at the motive. Unfortunately, some activists or fundamental groups, that would probably be us, have thought that they should either assume the responsibility of the state where conservative or liberal or um, whether conservative or liberal, or impede the government's involvement in the lives of individuals. I'm almost done. Hold on. However, this is his words, the gospeling calls individuals in the church to pursue the common good in our culture and to enter into the public square by encouraging and promoting gospel values by engaging in an incarnational grassroots strategy for cultural renewal, there we have it, and community development. That's the gospel. That's what we should be doing. What are we doing sitting here? We should be out there changing the culture. What does this gospel response look like, he says? This is to be, in, to be an integration of faith and vocational calling in bringing cultural renewal. There again, we have transformation, cultural transformation. Thus, the church and its members should cultivate friendships with people in the neighborhoods, join clubs and associations, take note of this, and partner with organizations that are also involved in acts of mercy and social justice, in quote. Do you know what that is based on? James chapter 1, verse 27. If you don't take it literally, you open yourself to a number of dangerous abuses. How do we get there? Well, your hermeneutic. I said, I want to prove to you why a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is important. A non-literal hermeneutic of James's words, widows and orphans, or rather orphans and widows, must and can be interpreted to be cultural renewal, cultural transformation. And therefore, if that is true, if that is the case, then we must be engaged in social justice. Saints, what we have in these books is not a biblical statement or philosophy of ministry. That is a political statement. That's government, not God. Let's think about this a little bit more. Somebody asked me this question, which made me think about the implication of verse 27. How is it that so many evangelical churches have folded to social justice, climate change, BLM, LGBTQ plus, minus, what do you ever want to add? Why is it that so many evangelical churches have said, that's it, we should be doing this? Well, this is why. Because we've had, for a very long time, a very loose grip on our literal hermeneutic. We claim to have a literal hermeneutic when it conveniently suits us. But when the pressure comes on, and here's what I want you to see, is that this has been coming on for a long time. Social justice did not just awaken. Wokeness did not just wake up. BLM did not just arrive. These things have been around for a long time, but elements, seeds of it has been sowed into the church for a very long time by a weak hermeneutic. Why the wider understanding of widows and orphans is changed to mean something more than it literally means is so prevalent today is because slowly there has been a hermeneutical compromise and therefore an ecclesiastical conditioning not to take scripture at its face value but to presume and infuse cultural transformation and cultural problems into scripture. Does that make sense? Hermeneutics leads to your response. It is important to hold to what scripture says. All that I read to you can be found in sociology and social justice. You don't need the Bible to have cultural and social transformation. You need a sociologist. 
You don't need God, you need government. This is why the church is folding uh, uh, to the pressure of social justice and even climate change. Where's your literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic now? Hmm. Is God sovereign? Amen, he is. So why are we concerned about a world that is crumbling? Is that not God's will? Amen, it is. Why? Because everything is working up to the day when God will reveal the majesty of his son, when he will come in fury and judgment, when all this world will be wiped out. Yes, global warming is coming and Jesus is bringing it. James is talking about a common human problem that still exists today. Do we have widows and orphans? We do. If he was talking about a wider technical term for all the poor, then surely, what about the widows and orphans today? Come on! Okay, let me end on this. I left out one word. It's this word, visit. I said to you, if we take widows and orphans in a metaphorical, wide scope, broad brush way, visit has to mean the same. It has to be wide. It, it is then cultural transformation if widows and orphans are not literal. There's two ways to understand the force of this word, visit. First, it could mean that you are caused to visit. You are passive in the process of visiting. Or it could mean that you are invested, personally invested, involved, and therefore benefiting from the visit itself. The latter makes a lot more sense. James is saying that there must be personal involvement in caring for the widows and the orphans. And this is the weight. Let me put it this way. It is easy to send an anonymous gift. It is easy to go and pay off somebody's debt and let them live in freedom, financial freedom. It is easy to do that. It is hard to get up from your couch, to get up from behind your computer and go to that saint and minister to them in their hardship. In fact, look at the sentence. It says, to visit orphans and widows in what? Their Affliction. You know what that word is? It is that crushing, twisting, grinding pressure. It was used um, of the, uh, uh, during the Middle Ages when, when uh, the kings used to take people who would not acknowledge the king as king. They would put bricks, boulders on their chest until they repented. I mean, the acknowledgement of the king. That grinding pressure underneath that rock. Before the guy could speak, he would be crushed. That is what he's talking about. Hardship. This is not an easygoing uh, thing that they're going through. This is difficulty to the extreme. This is affliction to the extreme. This is pain and suffering. What does it sound like to you? Trials. Trials. What is James saying? You take up your booty and you go to them. Go suffer with them. Instead of staying away from them, instead of signing a check and mailing it to them, instead of calling Uber and saying, go take them a meal, he says, no, go endanger yourself. Go to them. Go suffer with them. And go die with them. That is hard. That is the core. See, social justice is easy. You can take the world's money and just pay off all the debt. That is easy. That is impersonal. That is not the call. The call is personal involvement in the suffering of those who are God's people. And that is the limitation. This is not a general call to help all the poor, all the orphans, and all the widows. Should we help? Yes, we should. After we take care of God's people first. Are there orphans in the church? Adopt them if, if they don't have parents. Are they widows in the poor? Care for them if they don't have family to care for them. What is James calling for? 
personal participation and invested loving care for those who are going through affliction. He's not saying take them out of it. He's not saying pay off the debt. Let me give an illustration from scripture. The word visit in the Old Testament is used of God's gracious, loving provision of both deliverance and, and care. Can you think of an example? We went through a book that demonstrated that. The book of Ruth, right? They were in the fields of Moab. And Naomi hears that God had what? Visited his people. What does that mean? Well, he gave them bread. Gave them rain so that they can have produce. What were they? They were widows, both Naomi and Ruth. They go back to Judah, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. They go back to the house of bread. When they arrive, what happens? Oh, the blessings is over, it's just abounding, which means they don't have to do anything because the, the community will take care of them, right? They, they're just going to walk into it and their, their social problems will all be cured because there's guys who cares for them and who will just deliver them out of their suffering and affliction. No, that's not what happened, right? Naomi is old and weak. And Ruth takes up the social responsibility as a widow goes to the field and does what? She works. She works in the heat of the midday sun carrying bales of hay that is heavy that most of our men would crush under because we are so weak. We are computer guys. We are not weed guys. The, the visiting of God the care of God didn't mean deliverance from the affliction. Do you see that? It doesn't mean that because God cares for us, he's going to take us out of our hardship. Sometimes that happens. Ruth, well, somebody had a heart for her. And uh, his eyes was bleeding for this lovely young lass. And so he marries her. That is a unique situation. Normally, the widows have to work for themselves. They have to go and gather the food for themselves. In the New Testament, there's a change. You get in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, this is how you deal with, with widows. The church has a responsibility to care for them only after the family takes a responsibility to care for them. That was Jewish practice. And Paul says it applies to the church. You do your duty to your family. And then the church takes up their duty to that family. There's a biblical precedence for how the church must respond to its own. Who are the widows and orphans in the book of James? It is widows and orphans that were created by Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, where persecution came as a result of church growth. Acts chapter 6, the church was abounding at the end of Acts chapter 6, after the servants came and helped God's people. The church was then abounding even more. And as a result of that, these two guys, Philip and Stephen, were persecuted for their gospel ministry. And as a result of that, men and women were taken into captivity. They were persecuted for the gospel. More widows and more orphans. Why is James writing about widows and orphans? Because they have just dealt with it in Acts chapter 6. We are between that period, chapter 8 and chapter 10 because there's no Gentiles in the church yet. James says, you've just witnessed the neglect of widows. Please take care of widows and orphans. That is the church's responsibility to its own first and foremost. Charles Spurgeon, I can't find the quote, said that the church, uh, charity and purity is the heart of church life. It is the garment of Christianity. Showing love to God's people and keeping yourself unstained from the world. The struggle that we are in today is that we've redefined clear passages of scripture to conform to a cultural, transformative point of view. We have changed God's meaning to what we think it means in our culture and society. If a church has, has widows, we need to take care of them. If a church has orphans, we need to take care of them. 
And if we have taken care of them, then only are we responsible and can reach outside of our uh, four walls to care for those who are strangers. I hope that's a little bit more helpful because you are going to face this on a lot of various levels. And it comes down to this one thing. Your hermeneutic matters to God. How we take God at his word matters because it affects how we live in this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We can count on every word. There are times where you speak metaphorically. There are times where you use analogies. And we can see that because you've given us understanding. There are times where you speak literally. This is one of those times, Lord. Help the church, help our church to be faithful to the command to love those whom you love. Help us to be faithful to the exhortation to keep ourselves from this world. Lord, we are failing in many areas, and your church has been influenced by so many social and cultural issues. We pray that you would keep us faithful. Pray that you would help us. Help us not to do what we did in the beginning of COVID when everybody kept to themselves. James says, go and visit them. Go and love them. Lord, we are sinning when we keep ourselves from your people. Help us, Lord, to not follow this world, but to do what you desire us to do, to live in the way that you desire us to live that we may be in glory and honor to your name and be a witness to those who need you. Give thanks to you for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.